Hey, and welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Munte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization, everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, we'll talk with experts from across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palio.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Today, we are thrilled to be talking to Robert Talese. Robert is W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he's also Professor of Political Science. He's the author of Overdoing Democracy, and more recently, Political Argument in a Polarized Age. Bob, it's great to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me on the program, Turi. Your two most recent books could not be more politically appropriate as we come up to the US election, and as Europe continues to ask questions about where it sits, how it, how it wants its politics. I want to start with what seems to be the fundamental thesis of both those books, both Overdoing Democracy and Political Argument in a Polarized Days, which is, and correct me if I've misrepresented you, that democracy is the thesis that a stable and decent political order is possible among equal citizens who nevertheless disagree, sometimes even really violently. But yes, the, that's, that's correct, yes. Great, okay, so fine. So that, fantastic. So that's the sort of the, start, the starting point. But you come, you come at it with a proviso, which is that, that, that democracy is possible amongst equal citizens who disagree, but only if that disagreement is made to work in the service of democracy by what you call civility. So I want to, for the whole of this podcast, focus on these three core ideas of yours. The first is that democracy can only happen amongst equal citizens, that those equal citizens, in a sense, need to disagree to further the cause of democracy, but that for them to do that, we need civility. So equal citizenship, disagreement, and civility. And we're going to go through the podcast talking about those three ideas. So the first thing that I'd love to, to ask you about is, what is the idea of the equal citizen? And why is it so important to you? Good. So, you know, we like to think, and it's very natural for us to think of democracy as a set of institutions and practices, particularly practices having to do with elections, like voting and campaigning and raising money and speech making. But it's hard to make sense of why democracy has the institutional and practical forms it does, unless we identify some ideal, some moral commitment that is driving those institutions and practices, right? That is, we, want, we might want to ask ourselves, well, why in democracy do we have elections? Why in democracy is there voting? Why in democracy are there campaigns? And it's hard to answer those questions in any meaningful way 
unless we say something on the order of, well, because democracy is a mode of political association in which the people govern themselves. Now, that's a familiar kind of idea. The idea of democracy as self-government is a kind of textbooky statement. But say, well, self-government, what does that mean? And that's where I think you've got to start talking about the government of, you know, the government by people understood as equals. Now, let me put that in a slightly different way. Democracy is, the, is an attempt to answer or to respond to or to solve, we might even say, a moral problem, right? The moral problem that all politics is the answer to uh, is, you know, in order to live decent, long, stable lives as individuals, there need to be rules and there need to be ways of checking the rules and ways of enforcing the rules and ways of changing the rules. Democracy is the thesis that we can, as a group, make our own rules. We can govern ourselves. Now, the thought then is, well, you know, govern ourselves. But, you know, if one guy is just calling the shots and everybody gets, gets in line, that's a way of, of having a peaceful, stable social order. Democracy says, no, no, no. Governing ourselves means governing ourselves in a way that recognizes that nobody is another person's political boss or subordinate. That is, the law is going to apply equally to all of us. We're equally going to be imposed upon by the law. We're equally going to be subject to the rules of government. We each have to have a share in creating, crafting, directing governments. We each have to have a share in saying what the rules are. That's the necessary feature for living lives together of value, is that none of us is in the political sense, another person's subordinate. So what's really important then about democracy is the idea, and it's a radical idea, that a relatively just and stable social order is possible in the absence of political hierarchies. Now, when I say that, I mean, you know, there are offices that have special... Uh, responsibilities and powers. I don't mean hierarchy in that sense. You know, government are hi- governments are hierarchical structures. What I mean is that as citizens, nobody simply gets to call the shots for anyone else. Um, it's a dignifying proposal, but what we, I think, more often overlook and what I think really needs to be more carefully attended to, especially in political times like the ones we're living in, is that Um, democracy is not merely the thesis that government must treat us as equals. It is that. Democracy is, in addition, the thesis that we need to recognize one another as our equals. That is, if we're going to be a self-governing community, that is a democratic political order, we have to recognize one another as fellow citizens rather than as subordinates or masters or obstacles to be surmounted, we need to recognize one another as having a civic status equal to our own, even when we also regard one another as 
embracing fundamentally flawed ideas about what the government should do, what the rules should be, how the policy should be instated, and so on and so forth. That is, democracy calls us to recognize our fellow citizens as our political equals, even while we see at least some of those some of those other citizens as committed to political aims that we think are deeply flawed. Gotcha. How's that? Uh, that's 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 exactly where I want us to get to because I think that's where we all feel there's a kind of crisis. This dehumanization of the other side, a conviction that the other side is somehow corrupt, or as you've put it, depraved or dishonest or incompetent intellectually or morally. We, we're in the middle of an election cycle in the US. I can't remember a time where the portrayal of the other side on either side, Democrat to Republican, Republican to Democrat, has been so brutal, has been so, so full of contempt. So can you bring us up to speed as to why we're here? What has happened here? What is this polarization that we're seeing sure. across the political landscape? Sure. So here's an interesting couple of just data points, uh, particularly about the U.S., although some of them generalize to other contemporary democracies. One is that in the United States, the overwhelming majority of people agree that politics has of late become excessively and unacceptably antagonistic, hostile, aggressive, uh, uncivil. So we've got a large numbers of people, including people who are bitterly politically divided, sharing, a, sharing an assessment of the state of play in contemporary democracy. And the assessment is the temperature is just way too high. Temperature needs to come down. We need to restore some civility and consilience and cooperativeness into our politics. Now, that's the good news. Here's a second data point that casts some shade, we might say, <laughs> uh, on the piece of good news. When you ask those, those same folks who think that politics has become too acrimonious, well, what could be done to improve things? Overwhelmingly, the answer is, well, tell the people on the politically other side just to give us more of what we want. <laughs> that, that wasn't predictable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So the thought is both that politics has become too uncivil, but the key to civility is resignation from the opposition, right? So it looks as if even the, uh, even the, the lamenting, the decrying of incivility in American politics is itself an expression of, to use the word you just used, our polarization. By that I mean, is it's itself an expression of our sense that our political opponents are in some relevant way, morally, intellectually, socially alien. And they're alien in a way that calls into question their fitness for democratic citizenship. Now, when we put it that way, and you start looking, as I suppose some listeners will be familiar with, 
at some of the rhetoric that has been increasingly overt in American politics, especially at you know, the national levels. The rhetoric is all feeding on that sense that the political opposition is other or alien in a way that makes the opposition either unfit for democracy or positively opposed to democracy. So that talks to your specific, sorry, Bob, that talks specifically to your point around equal citizenship, right? Because that's what devalues the equal citizenry of the other side. That's exactly right. That is that when we see our political opposition as, by that fact of there being our opposition, as unfit for democracy, we can no longer see them as our fellow citizens in the full sense of that term. We have to see them then as the political equivalent of bad weather, right? Something to be endured, something maybe to be avoided, something to be overcome, something to be set aside. They're obstacles. And what that means is that politics then becomes what I've called a cold civil war, right? (laughs) Politics then just becomes not the prospect of trying to realize the ideal of self-government among equals, despite the fact that we disagree about what government should look like, that gets thrown out the window. Politics then simply becomes the method by which, without having to raise arms, we get to impose our will on others. And that's a fundamentally anti-egalitarian, anti-equality stance, that politics is is a contest for whose will is going to prevail over others. So again, just think about this. The, the way we do politics has created, and by the way, the way we do politics and some of the strategic incentives that are built into democratic politics for candidates and their campaigns to, to garner support and to rally their bases, some of these sort of churnal dynamics of democracy create conditions under which a core democratic capacity is eroded. That core democratic capacity is the capacity to regard one's political opposition within a very broad spectrum of opinion, one's political opposition as nonetheless one's equal. And, and, and part and of the see, same project and part of the same yeah, that's right. political that's project. Right. So you're excluding them from your, you're excluding both sides, exclude each other from the democratic process, essentially. Um, can, exactly I, right. can, I, can I ask you a perhaps a crazy question on the surface, but um, <laughs> are both sides right to think that the other is in fact extreme and problematic? I think what I'm asking here is, yeah. is there evidence that actually... Black Lives Matter protesters in the streets are more left-wing than historically the left has been, and that Trump supporters um, on the right are more right-wing than they've been historically. Is that true? Can we talk about the actual, what you call the political polarization rather than belief polarization? So, yeah, sure. are we more extreme? So again, I'm just now going to 
talk primarily about the United States, although some of these data also generalize to the UK and to parts of Europe, although. So here's something that citizens typically on first hearing are, are kind of shocked to hear, which is this, our sense of the extremity of the opposition has intensified in the United States. So citizens are inclined to see their, their fellow citizens who are differently affiliated politically as further extreme in the direction of those opposing political commitments than they did 30 or 40 years ago. Right. However, and here's the surprising part, when you actually look at individual citizens' policy commitments with respect to issues that not too long ago, talking like the 90s, 1990s, in this country were considered hot-button culture war divisions, the United States citizenry is no more divided on any of those questions than they were in the 80s and 90s. And mean, in fact... You, just to ask what those are, yeah. abortion, gay marriage, gays in the military, abortion, those kind of cultures. Marriage, that's exactly it. Stem cells, euthanasia. These were the hot-button political issues of the day, such that there were, you know, really what were understood at the time to be really unbridgeable gulfs between the United States versions of liberals and conservatives on issues about sexual morality, the beginning and end of life, abortion, women in the workplace, gay marriage, these sorts of things were gays in the military, as you just said, these sorts of things were really hot button issues. In the United States today, not only with respect to those particular issues we were just talking about, are conservative and liberal citizens no more divided than they were in the 90s. With respect to a lot of them, they've moderated. That is, opposition to same-sex marriage has plummeted in the United States. It's now not even a hot-button issue. In fact, you won't hear any candidate uh, talking about this in any election in the United States now. So now, there's a real back cultural and, shift there. There's been an alignment of issues across left and right. So in fact, on a political level, there's actually there's far more in common between left and right on that issue. One question here, have, has the, the, the kind of the, the frenzy of disagreement in the 90s about those issues just translated into the same level of frenzy of disagreement about issues such as, I don't know, transgender rights rather than gay rights or intersectionality and critical theory versus whatever it would be? Have we just, has the rage of before just translated into a different rage but equal rage on other things today? Well, so the affective stuff, the rage that you're talking about, has indeed escalated. And it's escalated in ways that far outstrip any of the actual divisions. What it looks, though, however, is that these culture issues, about particularly surrounding race, resonate deeply with citizens. Unlike in the 80s and 90s, when you could find citizens who were perfectly able to tell you what the debate about abortion is or what gay marriage is. <laughs> now, in the United States, the culture issues, although they're more volatile emotionally, the average citizen can't tell you what critical race theory is, doesn't really know what the hubbub is about, about transgender rights. They have some picture in their mind 
of radical leftists, anarchists, somehow leftists and anarchists and Democrats are all the same in the United States these days, in the imaginary in the United States these days. They have these senses, these sort of gut feelings of dislike for this pretty amorphous, nebulous, ill-defined other, but cannot articulate in any sustained way what the political issues are that's got them so angry. (laughs) This sounds like the worst of all possible worlds. This is exactly right. It's the affect, right? The negative affect we have in the States for the people on the other side has outstripped in a way that's confounding in a way, like any grasp of what the disagreements are, what the issues are, what well, the differences on. in fact are. That's, fasc- that's fascinating. And as you articulate it, petrifying. Can I ask <laughs> you to just bring this back to the theoretical terms that you use to, 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 yeah. to map this out? On the one hand, you've got political polarization, which is the, the distance in, in ideas, right? And then on the right. other, you have what you call belief polarization. Can you unpack that a little bit so we can talk sure. about it? Sure. So, you know, it's common um, among political commentators across the spectrum. Uh, it's kind of like the word civility. People lament polarization. It's uh, this country is so polarized. It's not often articulated what exactly the term means. And it turns out it means lots of different things. And so a lot of even the academic discourse about polarization sort of confronts a, a kind of terminological ambiguity. So political polarization, as you just put, put it, Tori, is the some metric of the ideological distance between opposing political camps. Different ways of measuring ideological distance, and we could talk about those if you like. But you know, we the, the, the intuitive story about political polarization is that when opposing political camps or parties are politically polarized, the common ground drops out, the middle ground drops out, the cooperative people huddle together uh, at at the polls and no longer see fit to cooperate with the other side. And what results from political polarization is deadlock and frustration and resentment, and also a, you know, an impaired ability to actually get on with governing. Because in a democracy, governing requires compromise and give and take and exchange and, and all the rest, cooperation and all the rest. So that's an intuitive sense of polarization. And depending on what exactly, what, which exact metric we want to point to, to talk about how to measure that distance, we could talk about the United States being especially politically polarized or only moderately politically polarized and so on. So we could talk about that if you like. But I think the more important contrast here is with a less familiar, but in some ways all the more intriguing uh, phenomenon that's also called polarization, which I call in the book belief polarization, and in other contexts is sometimes called group polarization. Belief polarization is a social cognitive phenomenon. It's not the metric or the measure of the distance between two groups. It rather is a measure of the way in which a like-minded group shifts into more extreme beliefs and attitudes. This is a very robust cognitive phenomenon, and it's got, you know, sort of popular correlates in the yes-man or groupthink phenomena, the sort of idiomatic sense of, you know, what happens when you surround yourself 
only with people who tell you how great you are and how you know correct you are about everything. Well, what happens in those sort of yes man or group think cases is you surround yourself with people who are constantly affirming your views about things. You sometimes imperceptibly, but reliably nonetheless, shift into more radical versions of those views. Turns out that this is a very powerful cognitive dynamic. It's been studied since the 1950s. We find belief polarization in like-minded groups of all kinds all throughout the world, groups that are like-minded with respect to different kinds of commitments from moral commitments and political commitments, even to just, you know, you get a bunch of people all who agree that, I don't know, Jennifer Aniston is, I'm, I'm dating myself here, Jennifer Aniston is particularly attractive. You get all of the Jennifer Aniston fans together to talk about how attractive that she is. And in the course of a discussion about her physical appearance, everybody adopts a more favorable estimation of her appearance that is, you get a she, bunch of she people. She becomes Cleopatra. She's not just yeah, a very yeah. beautiful woman. She's the most beautiful woman of all time. Yeah, this is exactly it. Now, so, that, can, so let's, sorry, I know you're a philosopher, yeah. not a psychologist. What you're describing is something that I try and avoid and fail to every day, which is I spend time on Twitter. And I see this every, every day on Twitter. That's right. Can you walk me through the psychological mechanisms at work here in belief polarization, group polarization? Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, there are different accounts of what the mechanisms are. And I'm just going to, I'm going to give you sort of my view about how this works. In the scholarly literature, among political psychologists, psychologists, some cognitive scientists and philosophers, you can find different ways of trying to, you know, sort of square up the data. But here's how I think belief polarization works. I don't think belief polarization occurs simply because when we surround ourselves with like-minded others, we hear new and unfamiliar reasons to believe the thing we already believe. And when we hear new unfamiliar reasons that confirm our views, we, we put those new reasons onto the pile of evidence we take ourselves already to have. And therefore we become more, more confident and ready to say more extreme things. I think that it's a far more group dynamical phenomenon. And this is why it's so easy to spot it on social media, even in cases where new information is not being shared, right? You know, the... the so one thing here is, sorry, just to interrupt. Yeah. One thing here is you're in a group, you add more information in support of your view, therefore your view, you become more confident in your view. That's one key phenomenon, phenomenon of, of, of group polarization. There's also that tendency to extreme views that you've just described That's in the case right. of Jennifer Aniston. Since so you've got extra confidence, you've got a sort of a radicalization of views. Right. Is there an element of protectiveness in group? Because there's also, I mean, from social media, there is something very aggressive about the in-group polarization, aggressor right. v the other group. What happens there? What's that negative definition of the in-group? Good, good, good. So as we shift into our more extreme selves, and you just, I think, you sort of touched on it very nicely, I think that the phenomenon is driven by our affective, our emotional senses of belonging with particular others. And the way that we shift both into being more confident and more extreme is when we find out that others who are relevantly like ourselves, 
believe the same things that we do. That is, I think belief polarization is better understood on the model of fans in a stadium. That is, I think that what happens in belief polarization is roughly what happens at a sporting event. You become more of a fan by attending a sporting event. Uh, And by the way, as you become more of a fan by attending a sporting event, not only do you become more enthusiastic, not only does your estimation of your team become even more heightened, not only do you start to entertain these more exaggerated evaluations of the team, your behavior becomes more and more like the other fans. You start behaving more and more in unison with them. You cheer when they cheer. You dress like them. You wear symbols that indicate to others that you're a fan of that team so that they can say, hey, you're another Yankees fan. We've got something in common. All of this is affirmation in the affective sense. It makes us feel good about who we are. And when we feel good about who we are, we become more confident. And when we become more confident, we adopt exaggerated, more extreme formulations and articulations of the commitments that we see as central to who we are. That is, we become more, we become more fanatical in that sense, simply in virtue of being affirmed by people who think we're like ourselves. Now, to get to your particular question, while that happens, As we shift into this more confident, more extreme, more fanatical, in that sense I just spelled out, version of ourselves, our conception of the outsiders, our conception of the people who are different, becomes increasingly distorted. And for those who listen who are sports fans, uh, you'll probably recognize this too. You're in a packed stadium. Your favorite team is winning. Your estimation of the team is going through the roof. Your enthusiasm is going through the roof. Something else happens. You start to adopt more, you start to write more heavily negative attitudes towards the other team and towards its fans. You might start to pity them or show contempt for them or wonder why they're such losers. <laughs> You start to feel actual contempt for the people, for the guy wearing the other jersey. That guy becomes an enemy, not just the fan of a team who's losing and isn't it terrible. That guy becomes uh, an opponent. It's very, very interesting and, uh, as you say, sort of petrifying sort of feature of group dynamics that the stronger we feel and I want to emphasize that this is affective. It's about our feelings. The stronger we feel affiliated with a group and the more we see the other members of that group as affirming us as authentic partners in membership, the more negative and more intensely negative affect we adopt towards the people that we perceive to be outsiders. And that's not a good thing. No, no, that's not a good thing. And so you can see, especially in, a, in a, a political arrangement like the United States, where we really have, you know, two major parties. We can talk about whether that's a, a bad feature of, of a democracy as such, if you like. I happen to think it is. But we have two major parties, and it's a winning strategy for the parties to punctuate, to even exaggerate, to to escalate 
their expressions of contempt for the other side because that's a potent form of political motivation is the contempt for the other in the same way that you know sports teams mascots rile up the crowd by getting them to feel their you know their enthusiasm sometimes by getting them to by stoking their contempt for the for the away team similarly that's what we're seeing in at least US politics now it's driven by contempt for the out party i want to i want to open this up in a little bit but the key feature of democracy that emerged from both your books was that it turns out this polarization is not a bug it is a feature right it is there for a reason not just because it it helps these political parties set up but actually because the very principle of debate and argument and the rest of it is sort of both morally and epistemically embedded in the idea of That's democracy right. i want to i want to ask you why why now why have we seen this 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 radicalization of uh, belief polarization. Why have we seen so, that over the course of the last 30 years? What's happened? And so, perhaps I might also ask you just to drop in some, some of your examples about the ways sure. in which we see it, because one description of polarization is also that political identities end up wrapping up far more into everything that we do, right? So it's not just that we're left and right, is that everything about us is one thing or another. Good. So Perfect. Let me just pick up with the sports fan analogy, because I think this can be helpful in this, with response to this kind of question as well. Remember, when we feel or when we identify with a particular sporting team and its fans, not only, as I just described, does our enthusiasm and all the rest sort of escalate, but as I had also mentioned, we become more homogeneous as a group. That is, sports fans, particularly activated ones, really committed fans, their expressions of their sports affiliation start to permeate other parts of their lives. They decorate their homes with you know, the emblem of their team. They wear clothing that signals their sports affiliation. In the States, we, you know, it's not uncommon to see bumper stickers that will tell you the people inside this car are fans of the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? A football, uh, American football team. So more and more as we sort of, uh, as, as we identify with a sporting team and its fans, expressions of that identity start spilling over into more and more of our daily lives. Now we're seeing this in the political context in a way that far outstrips the, the sporting case in that in America and other places as well, but I'm going to again, stick with the United States for a moment in America as our country over the past 30 to 40 years has become more diverse as a population in the aggregate in all kinds of encouraging ways, ethnic, religious, uh, sexual uh, orientation and identification, so on and so forth. The local spaces individuals inhabit physically, socially, and otherwise have become increasingly homogeneous such that in the United States today, 
professions are more partisan, homogeneous, or more homogeneous along, par along partisan lines than they were 30 years ago. Schools are more homogeneous along partisan lines than they were 30 years ago. Neighborhoods are more homogeneous along partisan lines than they were 30 years ago. Even within large cities that are home to a pretty diverse, largely diverse population, there are still neighborhoods within those cities that are fundamentally conservative, for example. Walk me through some I want some examples of the professions. Give me a left and a right. So it's very, very likely that your dentist is liberal. Very likely that your surgeon is conservative, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Why? I, again, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the explanatory mechanism is there. Uh, I don't know. Okay. And I'm sure that it's very, very, I mean, you know, these are not, whatever the explanation is. Are there others? Be simple. Oh, there are tons of others, right? There are tons of others. Just give one example. The number of clocks in your home positively correlates with how conservative your politics are. By contrast, the number of maps in your home positively correlates with how liberal you are. Those are signifiers, not just decoration, in other words. That's right. They're signifiers, not just decoration. That's the important, the number of tote bags, you know, I, in the UK, I, I'm sure you have them. We have in the United bags. States, we've got tote bags. Typically in the US, tote bags have graphics on them, sometimes even verbal messaging. In almost all cases, or in many cases, at least the tote bags will have sort of either political or moral messaging about the importance of reusable bags or recycling. The left-leaning for the United States major cable net, net, um, news network, MSNBC, sells tote bags that say, this is who we are on them. That's the message. The other side of that tote bag has the message, talk politics to me, which is interesting because just- Because Fox does not have a tote bag. The, well, Fox has tote bags. The, the, the more extreme right-wing outlets, Breitbart, will not sell tote bags. You know, the joke there is that, you know, tote bags are for people who think climate change is real. <laughs> you know? But notice, these are not only ways of living your political commitments. They're also ways of publicly expressing them to others in ways that invite certain kinds of social interactions and disincline others. So it's inviting a political conversation only after having expressed, right? So like talk politics to me, but first you have to know what I'm gonna say in order to have the conversation, which is again, I think a puzzling from a so democratic I, perspective message. So can I ask you, because you frame this beautifully as in a sense, a an irony, a kind of counterpoint to the heterogeneity of the US. So you have this tribalization of politics and a sort of balkanization of lived experience, while at the same time, the US becomes more and more diverse. Is that not just, is that, is there a cause effect game here? Is, is there a sense that as the country gets more and more diverse, identity politics becomes the place in which you tribalize because 
because everything else is just too complicated. So I think that's part of it. You know, again, I don't, I, I don't think that there's a unitary explanation for this kind, for this set of phenomena. So what you've just described seems to be part of the explanation. I think another part of the explanation though, one I explore in the Overdoing Democracy book in particular, is the fact that over the past 30, 40 years, more and more of our even physical environment, but certainly our social environment has become up to us. That is through technology, through the internet, through the way business is conducted, through the way commerce is now conducted, we have more and more latitude over our physical and social surroundings than we did in the past. That is, we're more mobile socially and, other, and in other regards as a society. That's not inconsistent. But, but not to say that, that there aren't sort of you know, inequalities in material well-being that are inconsistent with justice. In my view in the United States, there are. It's just that as compared with 30 or 40 years ago, Americans are more mobile in all kinds of respects. That is to say more and more of who we interact with, where the interactions take place, what features of our environment we're going to have to contend with and which features of our environment can be neutralized. This has all become in an amazing way increasingly up to us as individuals. We have more latitude over the world, our immediate surroundings than we did 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And it turns out, I happen to think for reasons that are, you know, sort of normal, quite, you know, innocent, you know, just reasons about personal preferences and all the rest. I don't think there's a deeper sinister story about this, or at least not a, a, a detailed one. Turns out that with this enhanced latitude, each of us has decided, each of us has acted. We've made choices in ways that have constructed our local environments in our own image, such that now it's really easy to go through the world in your day-to-day -day activities and not have to interact with anything unexpected. Anyone who's going to present you with something that is unfamiliar. And that does, very, and that back to your point around equal citizens and this notion of a shared project, a shared right. democratic project that everybody's involved with, that does, you know, death by a thousand cuts, but it frays the understanding of this collective. That's right. So when you see that our social spaces are partitioned in these ways that we have chosen that reflect our partisanship, because as we were saying a moment ago, more and more is expressive of and reflective of our partisanship. So we're living in social and physical spaces that are segregated politically, which means that we are heightening our exposure to belief polarization, which also means that more and more of our conception of what the political other side is like is coming from our own side. And surprise, surprise, those depictions of the political opposition that we get from our political allies are increasingly distorted so that we come to think 
we come to hold, let's say, increasingly negative attitudes and dispositions towards the other side on the basis of portrayals of them that come from people who are like us and often also from people who are like us and have an interest in us not liking the people who are different. Gotcha. Right? So, so the specific example here is that your idea of what a Trump voter feel, uh, believes in would come via MSNBC if you are a Democrat. And your idea right. of what a Democrat believes would come to you via Sean Hannity or Fox if you're a Republican. Exactly right. And that, so that in a sense, the political polarization, the bit which actually isn't so bad in the US and elsewhere, that bit is sort of, is exaggerated and therefore plays back into the belief polarization. That's right. So the ultimate, the, 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 the overall view in the Overdoing Democracy book is that political, belief, political and belief polarization work together in a kind of downward spiraling d- dynamic. In fact, I might even say that in the book, that belief polarization incentivizes, it rewards political agents who are interested in expanding the gap between opposing partisans. It, 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 it incentivizes politicians and parties and commentators to emphasize their contempt for the other side, which requires them to promote distorted portrayals of the other side. Now, here's the weird part about the dynamic. This mixture of intensified political and belief polarization feeding off each other actually turns us into people who are more like what the other side thinks of us, right? It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. We become more, more like the caricature that is peddled by the other side, by these forces. So it's self-fulfilling in a way that ultimately is degenerative of democracy. Eventually we lose the ability to sustain civil relations with people who aren't just like us. Now, when you put it that way, you say, oh yeah, I could see how that's degenerative democratically. You say, yeah, democracy, the core competency of democracy, the core capacity for democratic citizens has to be the ability to recognize in their political opponents, partners in a common political endeavor, equal partners. That is not only also get a vote, and so far as we're recognizing them as equal partners, they're people who deserve a vote, who are entitled to an equal say. They don't merely get one, they're entitled to one. And right now in the United States, that message that the other side is entitled to have their say, that is almost overtly now denied on all sides. Now right. it's the other side gets, the, uh, gets another say, and that itself is a weakness of the system, is a pretty mainstream political idea, even if it's not overt, it's pretty clearly communicated nightly uh, on, on news channels. Bob, so we, you're, you're describing a, a sort of quite bleak situation, but we're also talking a little bit to the incentives around it. Media, right. <laughs> Fox and MSN doing, doing their piece, politicians themselves. Again, I'm talking about this in the context of polarization being a feature of democracy, not a bug. A lot of people have spent a lot of time talking about the polarization built into the algorithms of the tech platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, which deliberately puncture the filter bubble 
They do show you opinions from alternative sides to yours, but really in an effort to make you irritated, to outrage you. There's a final piece that I want to touch on as well, which is in your description of lifestyle politics, the, the tote bag from MSN, the fact that liberals will get their coffee at Starbucks and conservatives will get their coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, for example. Nike's support of Colin Kaepernick's taking of the knee. Dove in the UK and possibly in the US as well, very much taking an approach to a sort of a liberal approach to what counts as beauty. Is there a straight question of marketing that a whole bunch of corporations and media organizations and platforms have worked out that actually humans like being polarized, they like being tribalized and therefore they're profiting off it? Oh yeah, no. I think that you just put it you put it uh, exactly right. There is a so this feeds into the. It's a feature. It's it's an unfortunate feature, not a bug, in the sense that it's not a deviation from democracy. You know, democracy requires us to interact with like-minded people, build coalitions with them, talk about our shared political objectives. That is that part of good citizenship requires us to expose ourselves to these forces that ultimately chip away at our capacity to do democracy or to perform well as democratic citizens. That's right. Part of this, of course, because the belief polarization phenomenon is affective, affective, right? Having to do with emotions. We like it. We like being in, you know, we like watching our favorite, you know, rock band play in a gigantic stadium of people cheering. It feels good for us to be affirmed in these ways. So I think that you're right that a lot of the, the, the infiltration of political messaging, political, overtly political campaigning from corporations, from celebrities even, is incentivized and in many cases, it's just straightforwardly a marketing strategy. It's true, yeah. right? And the reason why it's a marketing strategy, by the way, it wouldn't be a marketing strategy if, we, if the people who are in charge of designing marketing strategies didn't have really good reason to think it works. Right? Nike is it's never going to be selling, Nike's never going to be selling trainers into, to, to, to 80, 70 year old conservatives. This um, is exactly right. I want to, I want to, ask you whether this is new or whether in fact this polarization has always been there i'm there's a wonderful french sociologist called emmanuel todd Hmm. whose starting view on france is that since the french revolution you can basically draw a diagonal line between the bottom left and the top right and everything to the left and above that line is republican and by which I mean non-monarchist, <laughs> to be clear. Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah. So they, they're, they're, they're Democrats, they're broadly irreligious, they're predominantly on the left, and everything to the right of that line is very Catholic, much yeah. more um, still monarchist in peculiar ways, and that that line has basically split French politics for 200 years. Is right. what you're describing in the US, or what we're seeing with the polarization in the UK or across Europe, notably in Eastern Europe. Oh, is this a reversal to the the mean? Did we have just a little blip over the course of the last 30 years where 
having beaten communism, all all these Western countries sort of coalesced around a sort of single liberal neoliberal order. So sure. So I think in one sense the answer is perhaps certainly the end of the Cold War with the therefore the demise of some common demon <laughs> for Western democratic citizens to see as the the real alien force that everybody has to, you know, seek to demote and de- and, de- and defeat, that certainly set democratic politics in search of new ways to understand sort of galvanizing threats that could sort of energize a base. So I think that that's part of uh, the explanation. But I also want to say that another part of the explanation, again, has to do with the way in which the technology has enabled us to more easily curate our own social experiences. Because here's one other feature of, of how polarization has, how, how, how the, the negative affect for the other that is part of polarization has sort of shifted that we didn't get to mention, but I think is an important piece of this. One thing that's not new is hostility for the other side. That's not new. That's part of human nature. Uh, that's certainly part of human political culture, and it's certainly part of every democracy. So cross-partisan animosity is not new. My father was uh, a lifelong Republican. And he, when I was a kid, he really disliked Jimmy Carter, both as a candidate and also then as a president. Really disliked Jimmy Carter. Intensely disliked Jimmy Carter and intensely disliked the Democrats of the time. So there was a lot of animosity and hostility for the Democratic candidate, the Democratic office holder, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party leaders, and so on. The interesting thing about my dad, and this is, as it turns out, typical of the citizens of the United States through the 70s and much of the 80s. The interesting thing about my dad is that the guy who lived across the street from us was a union guy and a Democrat and liberal. And he was my dad's best friend in the neighborhood. That is, I, I don't know, you know, if they just didn't talk about it or, or what, but my father didn't transfer his negative attitudes and dispositions towards the Democrats and the Democratic Party and the candidates to ordinary citizens who affiliated with that political platform, those political candidates, those political agents. My dad liked the guy across the street. They were friends. My dad didn't see the guy across the street as defective as a citizen or depraved as a human being because the guy across the street was clearly a Carter voter and a Carter supporter. That has shifted in the United States. And your partisan, partisan animosity is now more commonly directed not only towards the party elites and the party leaders and the candidates and the spokespersons, we now have those same intense negative feelings towards our fellow citizens 
who we believe to be differently affiliated. That has shifted. That's part of the, that's gotta be part of the story that we've turned mm-hmm. this negative affect on our fellow citizens. We've, and I take it, at least on my account, this has to do with the personalization of politics. That now, now that politics, our political identities are all the more central to our understandings of ourselves as social creatures. That is, now that our political identity or political affiliation has become, and in some cases, by some metrics, has surpassed the role that religion plays in our understanding of ourselves. That is, we're now more inclined than we were to regard ourselves as liberal and conservative rather than Christian or Jew that we see our political affiliation as defining and all-encompassing in this way, that's new. And it's got a complicated set of sort of, ex, you know, sort of causal explanations and social explanations that you know, are clearly going to be very complicated. But that's, that's new, and that's what is, I think, ultimately the source of how this particular feature of democratic citizenship that involves some risk because democratic citizenship exposes us to and and laudable admirable activities of democratic citizenship exposes us to belief polarization but that personalization of the political in the sense i just described is what makes that feature not a bug it's a feature but it's still pathological right so you have here a beautiful story about your father, but what it also talks to is one, the personalization of, of politics, the fact that for all sorts of reasons, politics has now become a much stronger identity marker for each of us personally. We've got the fact that there is massive amounts of self-selection in our media because of the way technology now allows it. But critically, physical landscape has changed. And that has also meant that it's super unlikely that your father would have met his buddy, the union worker. Right. Bob, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I think a nice place to end the first part of this podcast. Thank you so much for giving us this expose of polarization in America today. Well, thank you, Terry, for having me on the program. That was the Palia podcast from palia.com the Encyclopedia of Opinion. Sign up to join the community and map what the world thinks.